Well, we are um, carrying on with our um, Esther series today. I'm sorry for like the long gap, but um, I was due to do part two, got COVID, that lasted a really long time, and then I wasn't very well after COVID, but here we go, we can crack on today, isn't that really good? So we're going to do a little bit of a recap, because it was a while since Matthew uh, did part one, so here we go. Let's just uh, pray before we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us the Bible. And we can learn so much from the stories in there of people's real lives and what happened. And I thank you for your activity in people's lives in the Bible where we learn from their wins and their fails. And I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit today, you'll make this word come alive to us and speak to us deep in our hearts that we can become more like you. Let it be a transforming word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to recap last time and then look at our little section today. And so last time we were introduced to the powerful king Xerxes and he is found in history. And what I I found really interesting in studying this is that a lot of the history at the time was written on parchments and in wars they would be burnt, but everything that was written on clay got baked and preserved. And there's loads of history of what happened at the time that was all written down and kept for us, which is amazing. And so we know that the Bible correlates with the history as well of the time. And King Xerxes was a real person, very powerful. He ruled 127 areas from India to Kush. And we pick up the story of Esther, that in the third year of his reign, he held a 180-day banquet. Now, that's six months. Now, this banquet, he brought the most important guests from the whole empire. Esther 1 verse 3 says he brought all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And we can see here that for King Xerxes, this was a political move. This was to show his wealth and strength. And it was a kind of generous intimidation to all the surrounding nations saying, look how wealthy, look how powerful I am. No point waging war with me because I've got it all. And it's kind of this generous intimidation and a bid for peace. And in this big show and show off of the military strength, it was to help bring peace and to secure his dynasty as well. And we also know that in these banquets, it isn't just like eating and drinking all day long for six months, but they would have you know, trips to see special things, they would have uh, meetings together, and that many alliances and political strategy would be formed with having all the most important people together for six months. Friendships were made, alliances were made, and this was a bid for peace across the nations. So it wasn't just like having a long party, but it was also political and strategic. And in Esther 1.4, it says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And think a little bit like Solomon. Do you remember how wealthy Solomon was? So King Xerxes, this Persian king, shows off his wealth for six months as a political strategy to those around him. And afterwards, he holds a second banquet. And the second banquet is a little bit of like a local thank you on a grand scale. So you know when we've put on a conference, and then we might all gather together the team who have done it. And this was for 
uh, the people in the citadel of Susa, who no doubt had been the ones to help put on this amazing event for six months. And this took place for seven days in the palace garden. All the staff were there from the greatest to the least, and it was a thank you for the six months for all those living in the fortress. Esther 1 verse 5, it says this, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest. It's important to notice who was at this party. The least to the greatest. So from the young boy who was his first job sweeping up everything that was left over at the banquet to the most important noble, everybody had played their part from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Now, apparently, you've got to kind of imagine the scene because the decor was amazing and beautiful. It says the garden had hangings of white in um, Esther 1.5. Uh, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen. This was fastened to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement. Also, there was a tiled floor with shells and gems and marble. You know, if you're thinking of refurbishing your house, go down the beach, a few shells, gems, marble, and there's just these fine drapes. It's just a beautiful setting, and everybody was invited, and this is the splendor and generosity of the king. Esther 1.7, it says, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, it is showing his wealth, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And note here the generosity of the king. This is in a way like our king, not that he's anything like King Xerxes, but it's not eked out. It's a generosity of the king, a generosity flowing. Um, we were studying for the Women's Weekend the other day about, um, or the women who lead, about um, Abigail and David. And uh, uh, Abigail's husband was wealthy. Do you remember? He was wealthy, but he was stingy and mean and kept it to himself. But here the king is sharing it as a big thank you with a generous uh, action. And then we learn about Queen Vashti, which Matthew covered last time. And Queen Vashti, the Bible tells us, was very beautiful and lovely to look at. And in those days, the, the queen, it wouldn't be like a, a love match, but it would be part of his political um, system there that he would have the most beautiful woman in the land. Now, during the second banquet, she throws her own banquet because she has her own palace. And you imagine now, after the six months of all the nobles and everybody and being around, this is a bit of a night off for seven nights. She has her own banquet with the girls. Come on, girls, all come round. Du you know, duvet days, Netflix nights, uh, Maltesers, pajamas, we'll hang out. No one needs to wear makeup now. We're not being wheeled out in front of everyone. And there they are just doing their own thing in their own palace. Esther 1 verse 11 says this. The king asked for Vashti to be brought before everybody, the, late, the smallest to the greatest, in his banquet. He said, please bring before, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, the key in this verse is the crown. The royal crown is the clue here. She is asked to come in her role as the queen, like the cherry on the cake of Xerxes' big um, demonstration. And this was her job before the greatest and the least. So yes, in a way, she was a trophy wife. And in our 21st century world, we might find that difficult. But for them in that context, that was her job. 
she had one job. So they send off for Vashti to come. And for whatever reason we don't know, she refuses to come. Now, this is very public. At the party, you've got the greatest to the least. And this is a bad mistake. And it is a big political problem. And in one action, she has undermined 180 days of political display to refuse to come. And this example of disrespect to the king happens in the whole of Susa, in the citadel there, from the greatest to the least. And everyone knows that that news is going to travel fast. Now, we have to remember, this isn't a domestic issue. This isn't a husband and wife falling out. That would be embarrassing enough. You know, if you're invited to dinner over someone's house and your host started arguing with each other and uh, you said, darling, would you bring the dessert out? And the partner says, no, I won't. That would be embarrassing enough. But this isn't like a little domestic situation. And it wasn't even a boss. It was more than a boss. This is the king. And in those days, kings did pretty much what they wanted. And this refusal is a very serious political issue. And the dangerous ripple, potential ripple effect of disobedience to the king. Now, it's a little bit like, I'm not into football, but I did check with Ben if this is right. So you football people can correct me if I get this slightly wrong. But something I have noticed, because Matthew used to support Man United as a boy, is Ronaldo has now joined Man United because he's not scoring so much. He's just not having as much match time as he wants. He's getting a bit frustrated. And so as many of you will know, at Old Trafford in the match against Tottenham, he was on the bench. And when it got near to the end of the match and he realized that he wasn't going to be brought on to play, he just got up before the final whistle, walked off the pitch without permission, and just walked into the changing rooms by himself. It's like, well, I'm not going to play, so I'm walking off without permission. Now, you would hope that there on the substitute bench, he would be there to the final whistle to egg on his team and show his support to everyone else. But no, it's all about Ronaldo. And so when he realizes he can't play, he just pushes off. Now, this provides the manager with a problem, doesn't it? Because if the manager doesn't do something with his high-profile player, what if all the players start behaving like this and just walking off, or if they're substituted, they won't play? And so, of course, Eric Ten Hag has to act, and so what he did is put Ronaldo on the bench and didn't let him play for the following week's match against Chelsea. And so we can see the thing with Vashti, it was going to have a ripple effect, even here in football. Like I was looking this week about the young footballer who's like copying Ronaldo's, you know, I scored a goal position. And the effect we have on one another of copying and learning. So King Xerxes now has a problem to solve, and he consults his team about next steps. In Esther 1, 13 and 14, it says this. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice. Now, this is interesting here because there are many times where kings have had just like young bucks as their um, advisors who've given them wrong advice for their own ends. But here it's about lawyers and those involved in justice. And it says, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. This is the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. So he has to take advice with the guys now, and he has to find out, look, is this one of these things that we can just let it go? You know, we were all having a party. She said, no, can we just let it go? Or is this serious now? It's going to have a ripple effect across the kingdom and destabilize everything. 
And it's interesting how King Xerxes, many of these kings, they didn't last very long, but King Xerxes wasn't a great and successful king, although ruthless by chance, but he had advisors around him who had special access. And we learned later, nobody could come to the king unasked, but these guys had special access to him. And there's wisdom in a pool of wise counsel. And Xerxes built this wise team that knew the people, the signs and the times, and what was legal around him. And our first thought today in this story is this, because I think we're going to do some thoughts as we go through. Our first thought is this. Where do we go for our advice? Where do we go? And how wise is the source? So sometimes we need some advice on something. And over 31 years of leading this church uh, with Julian, I've noticed that sometimes people with debt problems and money issues go to friends with debt issues and money problems for advice because actually we want sympathy and somebody to listen rather than being told, well, actually, maybe you're overspending on your budget. Or sometimes people with marriage issues have gone to friends or people with, us, with their own marriage issues where it's not a wise place for advice, but it makes us feel better to be able to go, oh, me too, me too. And we want to think about where do we go for our advice? And are we going to a wise source? So if you're raising children, look at people whose children you think, I'd love it if my children were like that. Can I ask you some questions? When our children were growing up, I remember when we helped a church in Belgium, their children were like adult children. And they were amazing. They loved God. They were serving in the church. And I would sit with their mother, Marlene, and I'd go, how did you do it? What did you do? Give me advice. Do you have any tips? The second thing is to think, do we stop and take advice? Do we look for a sounding board? Many times in life, there's something that's going to really have an impact on our life and the life of others, our ability to fulfill our commitments or our job. And we've got a different decision, to, difficult decision. Maybe we should move jobs. Maybe we shouldn't move jobs. Maybe we should move house. Maybe we shouldn't move house. But do we go to somebody who's wise and can help us to weigh up the pros and cons and the impact? And so just to encourage us with a little thought here, do we stop and go for advice? And if we do, is it in a wise place? Now, in Proverbs 15, 22, it says this, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So if we're planning to do something, take wise advice before we launch into it. And I love the New Living translation of this. It says, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. So, Let's take the wise advice of the Bible and we're thinking of uh, life-changing decisions that we take advice. And with the context of the church here, it would be small group leaders or elders who can also prophesy over you and pray with you. So Xerxes, he takes advice. The guys say to him, this is what we think is the best thing. We're going to have to replace Vashti now. She disobeyed you publicly. We're going to have to find a replacement because this was a public example to everyone. Now, you think about Vashti for a moment. There was a big cost to her disobedience, and this is sad. She got axed as the queen, the most privileged position apart from the queen mother in the whole of the Persian Empire, and she would never again enter the king's presence. And Vashti, Vashti had a choice, and in the moment she made that choice, she lost everything. And it's like she had one job. Her job description was quite simple. She had one job to do. In the not doing it, it was all over, and the job was given to someone else. 
So our second thought in this talk really is to think about consider our choices wisely. In making a quick choice or one out of anger or, or a sudden choice, we might lose something we value. And to remember that our relationships are very tender, never to take friendship or family for granted, because sometimes even a loose comment wounds. So to think of our choices wisely, are we going to lose something we value? And the second thing, like Vashti or Ronaldo, what is our example to others? If I make this choice, how does it help or hinder those around me in my life? What am I modeling with this choice? Okay, so moving on to Esther chapter 2, where we finally meet Esther. And the search begins for a new queen. So Esther 2 starts with this. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of the realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And so off they go all around the country in search of a new queen. And it's interesting how the culture of the day, King Xerxes fits into a, a period of Persian history called the Archimenid period. And I looked this up because I thought, well, what were women's choices in those days? If you were like working in the fields or with your family or, you know, and, and some, suddenly somebody came along to take you to the capital, would that be great or terrible? What are your options? So I looked up, what was it like for women in around the year uh, 480 BC? Well, in the Persian Empire, you would be lucky to be born there because it was one of the most advanced civilizations, second only to, to Egypt, where women were treated with respect. And although there was a very patriarchal system, Within that framework, women could work, they were supervisors, they could join the military. Within the royal family, uh, the queen mother, the wife of the king, the sisters of the king could be sent as dignitaries and ambassadors to sign documents. Um, in the surviving tablets and texts from the reign of Darius and Artaxerxes, which were the two periods in between, you know, either side of Xerxes, they even found receipts. And they found receipts of women in business and the military um, for travel, where they had traveled on their own or with others uh, for business or for pleasure. And so you can see that the, the context at the time, uh, women were some of the highest ranking in early civilization. It's amazing, until later um, the Persians got overtaken and everything changed. But even slaves in this period, slaves were treated as servants rather than slaves and given rights. You weren't allowed to beat a servant or to kill a servant. And the quality of life was better for slaves in Persia than anywhere else in the ancient world. Isn't that amazing? So the king had this harem of, a harem of concubines, as did David, as did Solomon. And in, within the culture here, it was like a respected job within the culture. Now, for us in a 21st century culture, this just seems very strange and doesn't fit well for us. But within the context here, the king, where you'd have his palace, his military, his horses, his concubines. Do you remember the time when, to disgrace the king, Absalom, David's son, slept on the roof of the palace with David's concubines to shame the king because they were such high rank? So this is like very interesting in the culture. And so... Um, it's recorded in history as well that King Xerxes built this separate palace 
So it shows the high-ranking status of these women who had access to the king, they had their own quarters, and the building was close to the palace, suggesting an elevated status of the women. This is interesting, isn't it? So now, it's not a beauty contest that these women are picked up from all over and brought to the palace. Some might have had plans, they might have had a fiancé, they might have had a job. And for some, it might have been a job choice that they look forward to because they now lived in the luxury and the protection of the palace. So very interesting, and it's a different culture to ours. And it's helpful to remember that as we go into the story. So Esther, how does she fit into this? Do you remember we looked at when we did the series on Nebuchadnezzar and we talked about Daniel as well? Let's have our picture up of the exiles here, where the Jews were taken into exile, Jerusalem was ransacked, and the people were carried off to Babylon as slaves. Now, years later, um, when um, there had been a change and they could go back, some of the Jews stayed. So Mordecai, uh, who we looked at last time, he stayed on. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and many of the Jews stayed on after the exile was over, and they kind of took very seriously um, when the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about you're going to be in exile a long time, put down roots, plant, reap, because it's going to be a long time. Make yourselves home among um, the foreign nation. And so Esther, who is she? We looked at last time, Mordecai works in the palace. He is a Jew, he's from the exile, but he hasn't gone back, he stayed, and he's an official in the palace at Susa, and he's often found at the city gate. And he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And now he had a little cousin who was orphaned, and she had no family at all, and she would be abandoned. So Mordecai took her into his home and adopted her as his own daughter under his protection and under his provision, where she was cared for as if she was his very own family. So she is a young woman growing up, and then we learn that she is lovely and beautiful. So when the guys come looking for the young, beautiful virgins, unless you're hiding under the bed or in a cupboard, she also got taken away. And so the palace edict, Esther gets taken too. Esther 2, verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. Now, I just try to imagine, what would the atmosphere in this harem be? So you've been brought, and one of you will be queen, just one. And I just try to imagine what that would be like. The only requirement was beauty. This wasn't about character or intelligence, it was just beauty. And was there an atmosphere of competition, of jealousy? Uh, were they loving and caring to each other, all sisters together? I can't, I can't, it's difficult to imagine what it might have been like. But then they also had like an enforced beauty ritual. Now for some of you, you might go, oh, this is, this is cool, I'd love this. For me, I'd be bored to death. So they had to go through 12 months. Esther 2 verse 12 says, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Isn't that amazing? How, how much of that can you do for 12 months? But there we are, they had to because they were going into the king. 
So Esther here, she enters the story as a pure young Jewish girl serving God. We see her heart as we go through the story. We see her heart to serve God. And here she's taken up into a foreign harem. And that is like probably the worst thing that could happen to you as a young Jewish virgin taken into this situation. So what is going to happen with her? Is she going to cry in a corner? Is she going to demand to go home? Is she, you know, how is she going to behave? And we see over the next few chapters how she rises to the challenge. And in Esther 2 verse 9, it says this, Hegai is in charge, remember. And she pleased him, this is the guy in charge of them, and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. And you can see quickly she gets special treatment. And the other thing for us to think about now in this story... She doesn't get special treatment because of her beauty, because they're all beautiful. So it's a level playing field. They're all beautiful girls. So what is it that stands out? It is her character that stands out, her godly character, her love. You know when Jesus says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And here she is living out her faith quietly. And she is living this out in the harem. And you imagine with like the gossip and the unkindness and perhaps cruelty going on. And she is living as a pure and healthy, and we find out later, an intelligent and strategic young woman. And so they were all beautiful, but she got advantage by her character. That was the defining difference. Esther 2.15 says, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. How did she stand out as different? I would say it was her godly character making an impact. And she stood out in this foreign harem because of who she was. And even at this point in the story, without a word, she doesn't give away her identity. So it's her character alone that speaks. And it reminds me, in, you know in 1 Peter 3, where it says that, uh, for women who've married a man who isn't a Christian, how many times can you explain it or say? But Peter goes on to say, if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, the character, the behavior, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And I think this is maybe what happened with Esther, the purity and reverence of her life, winning those over even without words, even without saying who she is. You remember when Joseph was captured? He went from strength to strength. He found favor everywhere he went. He went from a prisoner to becoming Pharaoh. And you think of Daniel, when we, discuss, when we discussed the story of Daniel together, and, and the, the historians think that their lives overlapped, that Daniel's was coming to an end as Esther is in the palace in the timeline of it. Now, when Daniel was exiled to Babylon to the same place, he was also powerless and young, but he got picked out for his intellect. So he already got picked and he got trained in an elite team. Do you remember the King Nebuchadnezzar University? So he stood up for his faith because he was already picked for something he was good at. So he was brave, and he was really brave to do that, but he, his starting place was in a stronger position, whereas Esther is like plucked from nowhere into a foreign harem, and she's got a different 
way that she has to negotiate this. And so Mordecai tutors her at this time to keep her identity a secret. And this secret identity just plays into the drama of the story later on. Esther 2 verse 10, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. And we see how she takes his advice, how they share faith. He keeps her faith buoyed up and he goes every day to find out how she is. So our third thought here is about character. I think it was Esther's godly character. And Matthew was saying in part one how God isn't mentioned in the story but you can see God working his way out, not moving people like pawns, but working through her life, through Mordecai, through Esther, through her godly character. And here she was, she was noticed for being wise and discreet. And our thought today is about talent can only take us so far. And all our talents come from God. So our talents and our gifts, they come from God, but they will only take us so far because it is our character that holds us there. So, so we could gain so much through our talents, but bad character will ultimately we'll lose what we have. But with good character, we can only go from strength to strength in the purposes of God. And so this issue of character, living out God's goodness in our lives, like Tim was saying in the kids' spot earlier. What is character? How do we develop it? And how is my character a witness to Jesus? When people see how different our life is, how we don't gossip, how we're kind, how we're loving, how we're caring, how we go to help somebody, how we're not selfish, but we, we have the characteristics of Jesus in our life. It stands out. Character is our honesty, faithfulness, tenacity, not giving up, kindness, generosity, selflessness. You could wrap this all up by saying love. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, we become more like Jesus, more like Jesus, more like Jesus. Now, we know that we all make mistakes, and we're all fallen, and none of us are perfect, and we make mistakes every day. We think things we shouldn't, and we say things we shouldn't, and we behave in ways we shouldn't, but we are gradually being transformed more and more like Jesus with every year that goes past. So I want to encourage us, it is our character that will stand the test of time. And it is our character that spreads the light of Jesus to those around us. And it was Esther's godly character in the little daily choices every day where she had to, maybe she was kind to someone and didn't gossip about them, or she was obedient to something Mordecai said. And all those little tiny choices built up to the big one we look at in a further chapter. Well, eventually, all the beauty stuff is over, and it's time to go to the king. Now, they had this little thing where you could take anything you want into the king. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this, because I reckon that if you've got a harem of concubines, it's not a bedfellow he's looking for. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be somebody who can be uh, an ambassador and a presenter, that when he does these banquets or goes somewhere or travels or has important people, that they don't blow it. It has to be more than a pretty bedfellow, because he has plenty of those already. What is it he's looking for? What is it by this time he is tired of all these years, these different girls coming in and going? you know, where they've got to try and prove themselves to him. I, I just feel, what would it be like to have to go and prove yourself to King Xerxes? And so you could take something into the king. And so 
Esther is really wise that she asks Haggai what she should take. So rather than thinking herself, she says, do you know, you know the king best, you advise me. In Esther 2.13, it says, anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, suggested. Now, what do you take to a king? What do you take to a man who has everything? What do you think? What do you take? So I was thinking, maybe a really good bottle of champagne. Like a really good one, really nice one. Maybe you've had the slaves all making it because you knew you had a whole year to wait. Maybe that. Or maybe, do you know all those hours hanging around in the harem? Maybe they had crafts and they got your glue gun out and you start gluing Ferrero Rocher onto the bottle of champagne, go the next level. And so now you present an exotic Ferrero Rocher stuck onto the uh, champagne. I don't know, what would you take in? And then, do you know, I was thinking, I know what it probably was. I know what it was. I remember many years ago, Julian and I went on holiday. We arrived at this holiday place, and all the accommodation was in blocks. In our little block, our room was at the top, and we had a balcony. And you could sit on the balcony, you could watch the, like, the sun go down, but you could also see all the other blocks, just where ours happened to be. So you could see people on their balconies or their patio. And, you know, there's nothing much else to do but people watching, is there? And so we would notice every night at dinner, we'd go to dinner, and there's a young couple there who I think were on their honeymoon. They're really dressed up. Whereas we were like, oh, do I, do I have to bother dressing up for dinner? But, you know, they're dressed up, they look young and fresh, and I think they're on their honeymoon. And every night at dinner, we'd, um, we'd go, oh, look, the young couple are back. And then we'd notice they'd dash off quickly after dinner every night, and we're like, oh, well, obviously, honeymooners, you know, I wonder what they're dashing off to their room. So we'd go for a little walk and everything. Then we'd go and sit up in our balcony, and then we realized that the young couple, dashing off every night, were sat down on their patio, and we could see them, and they were dashing back, changing into t-shirt and shorts for a very important activity on their honeymoon. And there it was, every night, they got the table laid out on their patio, and they brought out the Connect Four. And every single night, this honeymoon couple, they played Connect Four till it was too dark to sit out there anymore. And I thought, there we are. Maybe that's what Esther did. She took the Connect Four because, you know, he'd never played this game before. And maybe she took something special. And Haggai said, do you know, you'll never beat him and then he'll be happy. So take the Connect Four. But whatever it was... Esther just bowed to Haggai's greater knowledge. And we see right through the story, her submitting to wisdom, submitting to wisdom in this pool of advice around her. And so Esther goes to King Xerxes in year seven of his reign. This is four years after Vashti. Now, in those four years, he'd fought many battles and been in wars, and I suppose the whole beauty process and collecting them up from around the country took time. But this is no rush here. The selection across the nation, it takes a while to find the right queen. And so we find now that it's time for Esther to go to the king. Esther 2, 17. What will be the result of all this preparation and the exotic, you know, Ferry Rocher champagne and Connect Four? But if anyone's listening, I just made that up. That's not in the Bible, just in case you're wondering. Just in case I get told off later. Um, Esther 2. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. Now, just a pause there. There is something about her that he's attracted to more than any of the others. It's not just her beauty. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet 
Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When you see this king, there's an Esther bank holiday. Imagine having a bank holiday named after you. He throws an Esther bank holiday. Everyone has a holiday. They receive gifts. All the nobles and the officials are there, and there's a great celebration. We see, once again, the wealth and generosity being shared out. And we know that Esther is not just another pretty girl, but something about her has reached to the king and character wins. And in Esther 2.20, it says, as queen, she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Isn't this interesting? She's in the palace. She's chosen as queen, but she still takes his advice at the gate. So that's the end of this part. And just a couple of little thoughts as we finish. I think in this part of the story, there's a very clear difference between Vashti and Esther. They're like held up as two models. Vashti disobeyed and her life went south. Esther obeyed and took advice. Vashti lost her place. Esther gained favor in the palace. And there's these two clear contrasts. And it reminds me of the time Jesus tells that story to the crowd that Tim told so well earlier of the help of the boys about the wise and foolish builder. Now, when Jesus explained that story to the crowd, he did it in a way they could understand. When he was telling the story about building a house on sand, they're probably laughing. Who would build a house on sand? Then he talks about building a house on the rock. And he says, when the trials and tribulations of life come, it is the house built on the rock that will stand. But what is the rock? We know the rock is Jesus himself, but it's also his words and obeying them. So Matthew 7, 24 is this. Jesus explains to the crowd, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the important thing Jesus is saying here is to hear his words, to read his words, to hear his words. That's not enough that we have to put them into practice. And as we put the wise words of Jesus into practice, our life will be like a house where when the winds and the rains come, it will stand firm. In James 1.22, James writes here, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And this is a great reminder to us to take on board the words of Scripture as explained to us and in the Bible and to live them out, not just to hear them and to know them, but to put them into practice. And we see in this part of the story Esther listening to the advice of Mordecai, listening to the advice of Haggai, putting it into practice and seeing how life wins when you obey. Now, it's amazing how the Bible is full of promises about our obedience and trusting in God and living out his commandments all the way through. And Jesus, when he left this earth to go back to heaven, remember he brought that commission to all of us as disciples. And he said, therefore, go and make disciples. This is our role now. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then this bit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Now, can you see Jesus is saying, I am with you in this. I am with you. And when you go and make disciples, teach them everything to obey. So our obedience to Scripture and to Jesus is key for our lives and to help others who find Jesus to walk in their discipleship, teaching them to obey 
everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you in that. I am with you all the way to the end. You're not doing this by yourself. You're not struggling and trying. But we're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we give our life to Jesus, we have Jesus in us. He forgives us for our sins. We have a blank sheet. And then the Holy Spirit lives within us. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we live in the power of the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus, and by, by the Holy Spirit, he warns us when we're about to say something we shouldn't, when we have a mean attitude and we shouldn't. He quickly prompts us to say, sorry, Lord, I, forgive me for that mean thought, or help me, Jesus, not to do that. Oh, I'm so tired. I've got to go and help that person. Yes, that's right. That's the right thing to do. Yes, Lord, with your strength, I will. And so we live this out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And two last thoughts. When I was writing this talk a few weeks ago, I just felt Jesus prompt me with a couple of things that might be for people here or for on, online as we finish. And there's just two little thoughts. And the first one is this. Esther was an orphan and needed a place to belong. And for some of you here, you might be wondering, where do I belong? You have this thought all the time, where do I belong? Where do I fit? Now, Esther was adopted by Mordecai like a daughter into his family. And in Romans it says, we can behave like God's very own children, Romans 8, adopted into the bosom of his family and calling to him, Father, Father. If we could have that on the, on the screen, Ben, that'd be great. Romans 8, 15, that we can behave now like God's very own children, adopted into the bosom of his family and calling to him, Father, Father. That's our place now. If you're wondering where you belong, belong in God's family, come to him, call him father, daddy, and belonging in the bosom of the family. I love that verse Matthew put up at the beginning today from Ephesians 2 about becoming members of God's family together. So if you're feeling, where do I fit? Come into God's family and find your place. And also, I love the verse in Psalm 68.6 that says, God sets the lonely in families. And Cornerstone is a family of all different ages, different people. It's a family. Let's make sure we're continually embracing others that the lonely can find a place in family. And the last thought um, that came to me in writing this was that for some people here, you might be in an in-between season. Now, Esther was in an in-between season. She was living her life, doing whatever. She ended up being queen. And in that in-between season, she was taken off into a foreign harem, not ideal. But she was in this in-between season. And some of you might feel you're in an in-between season. You're just waiting for the next thing. You're waiting. But I want to encourage you. I felt God was saying, don't put your life on hold, treading water. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm just treading water. But serve where you're at now. Live out God's purposes now. Develop your character because your everyday choices matter. And you can see for Esther in the harem, those everyday choices led to her success. And in your in-between season, your everyday choices of allowing the Holy Spirit to build character in you will actually prepare you for the very thing you're waiting for. So don't be in limbo thinking I'm an in-between time and just treading water, but allow God to shape your character so you're ready for what lies ahead. So Esther, that's the end of that bit of the story today, but let's pray together with the things that God has spoken to us about today. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that you are with us. When we ask you for wisdom, you give us wisdom. I ask, Lord, you'll help us to make wise choices. Help us, Lord, when we need to go for counsel, that we look for it in a wise place. And I ask, Lord, that you'll help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'll work in our character every day, that we may have resilience. And in our obedience of your word and, your perse- and persevering with you, that you'll develop great character in us that we may stand. And I ask for your blessing, Lord, on every person here, if they're wondering where they fit, where they belong, in an in-betweeny season, that you'll come by the power of your Spirit to put our hearts at ease, to say, Jesus, I thank you. You are with me. I am not alone. Surely you are with me to the very end of the age. May your blessing be rich among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.